Welcome to the Hope Beyond Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Rhoda Hostetler. There are literally millions of listening options out there, but today you chose this one. I hope whichever episode you're about to hear gives you something worthwhile to think about and a greater ability to love. Thank you so much for being here today. All right, guys, today we have a unique conversation. Rather than just having one guest on to um, discuss their strengths, we are bringing two guests on today. And so I will be talking about pornography from the perspective of those who have endured being filmed for it. Sarah McDougall will be talking about pornography from the perspective of a spouse who has suffered betrayal through pornography. And Andrew Bauman um, speaks to men who are working to overcome some really unhealthy ideas and beliefs and tendencies. So you are likely going to hear something that you don't agree with today, simply because we have three people who care a lot about our topic and we are involved in three slightly different places in the conversation. So um, expect to hear something that you've never quite thought of that way before. And for those of you who are coming in, um, listening to this because you are part of my core audience, Please know that I have a lot of respect for Andrew. I have a lot of respect for Sarah. And I want you to be able to hear what they have to say, even if it's something that I might not have said myself. So when Sarah is speaking, she's speaking from her experience and her beliefs. And Andrew is speaking for himself. And I'm speaking for myself. And that's that. So we're going to get started with that. So in this conversation, Sarah, Andrew, and I are all three believers. This conversation can be a heavy conversation. Um, especially for listeners who have been filmed for it because of how that interacts with trafficking. So we're going to open by pointing out how Jesus is good news for those of us who find pornography to be a personal conversation. Sarah, could you please take a minute or two to answer in your own words how Jesus is good news to those who are harmed by the pornography habit of a family member? I think it's a really thoughtful question to start with, Rhoda. Um, it, it's a heavy question because very often when we are experiencing betrayal from someone that we have loved and trusted, it is a very natural and understandable response for us to transfer that experience of betrayal to other people that we have assumed are loving and trustworthy. So very often when you have say a, a wife who is going through betrayal trauma, it's not unusual at all. For her to start saying, well, can I even trust God? Like if I can't trust my husband, can I trust Jesus? Uh, I think that it's probably a more nuanced answer than that one minute kind of answer. Um, However, I would say both from the experience of the women that I work with in my own personal journey, that very often in that, in, in that point of the journey, it's pretty common to realize that no, you cannot trust the Jesus and the God that has been described to you by people who very often were also spiritually abusive. Mm -hmm. But the real Jesus, the one that I have gotten to know on the other side of that journey is absolutely a comforting person. 
So if you are struggling with that sense of betrayal trauma and transferring that onto your picture of God and your picture of Jesus, and if in this point in your journey, you're saying, if this is what God is like and how he's been described to me, I want nothing to do with that. You're pretty normal. And that's a pretty typical place to find yourself. And it's okay to sit there for a while. But in, in my personal experience, I have found the real Jesus to be very much different than how he was painted to me. And that Jesus is incredibly comforting. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Andrew, the same question for you. Could you please take a minute or two or a few if you need to, to answer how Jesus is good news for those who use pornography? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, good to be with you both. Um, uh, for me, um, it starts with the Imago Day. God is in the face of the other. And so when we have a posture of objectification, we literally take the face of God um, out of a woman's, say, body. We make her an object. You cannot have objectification and honor simultaneously. And so if you come with a posture of objectification towards beauty and a devour of beauty, um, you lose the face of God. You lose God. Um, and God is known through each other's faces. We can know God more fully uh, through our experience, healthy relationship with each other. Um, and we lose that when we take a place of objectification and power over rather than shared power and mutuality. Wow. And for me, how I would answer how Jesus is good news for those who have been filmed is I would say, remember Hagar, and people might not be familiar with Hagar. She was a, a woman who did not have choices. She did not have voice. She did not have autonomy. She was used by Abraham and Sarah. And in her moment of utter despair, when she couldn't even look on her own son because she was sure he was going to die, she names God and she names him the God who sees. And that is a tremendous comfort once you realize that the God who sees is not a God who sees to exploit. He is a God who sees with absolute compassion. Yes. Sarah, um, do you have statistics regarding pornography and divorce, pornography and the spouse's mental health, pornography used by a parent, and parenting that you could share with us, basically any statistics regarding pornography used by one partner and its impact on family members or family culture would be welcome. Okay. So that's a loaded, that's a loaded question. And there's so much that I could answer. So I want to, I want to kind of just narrow down a little bit. And if you want me to expand further, we can. And Andrew, you may also have statistics that you have to balance this out too. So um, first of all, you know, the, the, the study of the impact of betrayal trauma, which is the term that we use in this field to describe the feelings of the spouse who has discovered that typically the wife who has discovered that their husband is watching and addicted to porn. Now, 
I suppose it can go the other way as well, but I work exclusively with women. So that's my framework of reference. It's not that there aren't men that might be in the reverse situation. It's just that I work with ladies. So that's, that's the perspective that I'm coming from. So when I, when we have women who have had a disclosure or a discovery and disclosure means that the addict told them and discovery means that they found it and maybe confronted him about it. Um, so when we have a woman going through that, um, very often in the past, women were told, oh, well, you're codependent. You're just addicted to your addict. You're just trying to control him. And that's a, an, an older approach to this, but it places a lot of blame on the wife for something she didn't even know was happening often for much of their marriage, especially in the believer circles where women have been taught to save themselves for marriage. And they may have been virgins uh, when they got married. And then they assume that this sexual relationship in their marriage is exclusively between themselves and their spouse. Yeah. Now in, in other cultural approaches where those expectations may not be there, um, we still see betrayal trauma because there is the assumption of exclusivity or monogamous relationship when you have two people, even secular non-Christian people who are in a committed relationship, but it is definitely more keenly felt among women who have been taught and who believe that this married sexual relationship is exclusive between them and their spouse. So as, as the, the, the field of study has gone further um, Dr. Barbara Steffen's book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, is a powerful book I highly recommend. It has a lot of great information in it. And she did over 10,000 hours of study about how what women in this particular experience are actually going through, it is trauma. It's not co-addiction, it's trauma. And out of that and other researchers we now use the term betrayal trauma. So when I'm talking about betrayal trauma, I'm talking about that wife who has either discovered or has had a disclosure and she's realized that her husband is watching, using, or addicted to porn. So in that, um, Vicki Larson, who is a journalist and an author, her research says that uh, watching porn not only contributes to infidelity, but a spouse's porn obsession was a factor in 56% of divorces. So we're looking at pornography being a huge player currently. This is since like 2003, 2000, 2003, mm -hmm. um, massive player in the demise of marriages. At a 2003 meeting of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, two thirds of the divorce lawyers present noted that the internet was playing an increasing role in marital splits with excessive online porn watching contributing to more than half of divorces. Um, in the work that I do, and just as a benchmark, I currently have over 4,000 women in private support groups for trauma mamas and betrayal trauma. So the trauma mamas group is focused on women who are parenting after trauma that can be parenting through family court trauma, post-separation abuse, this kind of stuff. And the other one is specifically for the betrayal trauma support. Um, but there's a ton of overlap 
in the experiences between all of those women. Porn is overwhelmingly a strong factor in their abuse. And so when I say that, to answer your question about statistics, I think there is a tremendous amount of more scientific research needed to understand and to really give us numbers for the impact that porn has. What I can say is that porn is absolutely contributing to a divorce. And I have yet to see a a significantly statistic uh, number of abuse cases where porn was not a factor. In other words, it's almost a guarantee that if a woman is experiencing domestic violence and abuse, porn is happening on some level. That doesn't mean that every porn user is a domestically violent abuser. It does mean that when a woman is experiencing abuse, porn is almost always present. Yes. But that being said, porn by its very nature, like Andrew said, teaches objectification, exploitation, violence, degradation, and the consuming of other humans as acceptable sexual entertainment. So porn is the consumer groomer yeah. for real life abuse. It teaches abuse as fun and normal and desirable and just standard baseline interaction. So it's impossible to be actively watching porn and not be immersing yourself in the normalization of abusive behaviors. That is so well said. We do have, we do have some good studies on how dominating and violent behaviors are nearly always directed at women in pornography Absolutely. How racism is a huge factor in pornography and people don't want fetishization. To yep. Uh, I found this gem when I was checking for um, studies last week, long-term and massive exposure to porn, even non-aggressive porn. So even if you're talking soft porn, it increases real life violence against women and women who view porn are more likely to put themselves in risky situations and less likely to report rapes when it happens, which means they have internalized the belief that violence is the same as love or violence is just what is due them. It's acceptable treatment to receive or to give. Now, And I, I know you've got questions for Andrew on the statistics too, but just to tie that off, there is a brand new book out, which I have not yet finished reading. So that's my caveat. I haven't even finished reading it yet, but I know Andrew read the pre-release manuscript and he's one of the endorsers on the book and it's called The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex by Sheila and Keith Gregoire. And one of the things that their scientific research studies showed is that there is a massive dose response factor when it comes to porn watching. In other words, if you watched porn when you were 14 and then you never watched it again, you're not going to be nearly as affected as someone who is watching it constantly because the more you watch it, the worse life gets. So the just the bigger the dose, the more the effect. And that's something that we have to take into consideration. Especially considering the percentage of pastors and Christian men um, who are viewing pornography. One of the stats that I ran into is that uh, Christians are among some of the top consumers of pornography. And there, there are reasons for that. Um, That's a different conversation that is. stands on its own. Yes. 
Andrew, let's move on to you. Um, do you have statistics regarding age of introduction to pornography and porn addiction, porn use, and mental health? What does an individual stand to lose personally by engaging in pornography consumption? Yeah, I mean, the, the stats get, you know, as Sarah spoke to, a bit dicey as far as what is considered addiction, what is considered, you know, I mean, it, 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 there's so much random information, some helpful, some not, but I feel like the, at least the average first exposure is as early as 11 um, years old for, for kids. Um, I, I believe the statistics are 79% of young people's unwanted exposure to pornography happens in the home. Um, right. And so this is important because we do need to create safe homes. We do, you know, um, so internet is huge. That, that's in a sense, we are the first generation with um, internet in our homes, you know, and as I became 13 and we got the dial up internet and that's when I discovered pornography. That's when I, for 13 years, began to consume and learn and growing up in a very strict conservative home, nobody talking about sex, nobody having conversations, just shame, just no, just bad. I did not have um, any language for what I was experiencing or the arousal that I was experiencing. And that is what's so vital is we have to begin to empower um, Christians to talk about sexuality, healthy sexuality, actually empower, educate our kids. Um, instead of just kind of one birds in the bees, it's a thousand small conversations of sexuality, of, of healthy, of here's your penis. This is how you use it. This is a vagina. This is your breath. This is puberty. We have to normalize the conversation rather than having this stigma, rather than just moralizing it and making it good and bad. We actually have to begin to have nuanced conversations. And for your listeners, that's only going to happen if you make peace with your own sexuality first, right? You're not, in a sense, we will not take others where we have not gone ourselves, so if you are not at peace with your own sexuality, your own abuse, your own addiction, whatever, you're not going to parent well or lead well in that area. Wow. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for going there. I was going to say something when I, when I opened that I'm planning to mark this episode as explicit. So y'all are free to say whatever you need to say, but you said what you needed to say anyways. And I'm so glad. You might want to go back and go ahead and mark this as explicit. Cause you know, like I'm sitting here thinking I have a, a son going on 13 and a daughter that's 11. And I mean, we got puberty going on all over the place. Right. Yeah. And it, like, they take turns with chores. So when it's his month to do laundry, he's like, I'm not touching her bras. Oh my goodness. Uh, this is, and I'm like, you know what? So here's the thing. Your mom has boobs. Your sister's growing boobs. Your wife is going to have boobs. Someday you're going to have a daughter who grows up and she's going to have boobs. There is nothing sexual about folding bras. Yes. So just like, this is, this is not a thing. Like you can, you can have you can have things about things that are real things, but, but we're not going to sexualize just being a responsible family member and folding each other's underwear. Yes. Uh, but, but we have a ton of conversations all the time. Like all those micro conversations, I can't help but laugh. It's a great way to put it, Andrew. Yeah. We, we start young here, which I started off parenting. Uh, well, we, we were living in the red light district when my boys were toddlers. And so there were some conversations that we just had to have because they just came up. 
But one of one of my rules as a parent for myself is I don't potty train my boys until I know that they understand um, private parts and some very elementary rules about their private parts and they can name their penis and they can they are comfortable talking about it with me. Um, and then that that is one of the markers that tells me it's OK to potty train them, um, which I'm not going to go into all of the dynamics of why I came to that conclusion. Um, but yes. Yes, yes, to needing to have those conversations and normalizing them when they are young so that it just it flows and they see mom and dad as a safe place to where they can bring those conversations to. Um, as far I think, as I think that consent has to be part of all those conversations, that body education, too. Sorry, I'm not trying to derail your 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 line of questions. Um, You're absolutely right. Consent, teaching basic body autonomy. If, if a child says, no, mom, I don't feel like snuggling right now. We don't need to snuggle. Yeah. Yeah. And hugs to grandparents. And, mm. um, you know, I, I think there's all kinds of ways to help children be courteous, mm. um, and respectful and honoring. Like you could do a fist bump and you can look someone in the eyes and say, hello, it's great to meet you, but you don't yes. have to go give them a hug. Um, and even, <laughs> like, again, with kids, like, I remember having conversations with my son about like, well, what do you do if a, if a girl likes you? Cause, or if, if a girl doesn't like you yeah, and you like her, he's like, well, if I know she doesn't like me, it just, I don't keep pushing, mm-hmm. just let it go. It's not like a, Oh, work harder until she changes her mind. It's like, no respect that back off. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh- I'm going to relay some statistics on pornography use and prostitution. And the way this conversation was brought up to me, um, a lot of people come into the pornography conversation either as consumers or as a spouse of a consumer. For me, it was different. My husband had been pornography free for a long time. We were living in the red light district doing anti-trafficking. And I noticed that the wives of the men who visited prostitutes were sharing pornography videos on Facebook. And that piqued my curiosity. Well, that's an indirect communication culture. And so they use social media as an in-between tool. So these wives were trying to communicate a message to their husbands. And I went into my Facebook settings, set it to where the videos would not automatically play so that I could focus on reading the captions underneath the videos. And without exception, Every video that these wives were sharing had to do with violence. Mm -hmm. They were using pornography videos to tell their husbands, look, I know what you're doing. I know what you're about. I know you're being violent to other women. Mm. And at that point, I was like, okay, what is going on here? Like, are there statistics to back this up? Is this just anecdote? Okay. Andrew, do you have my sound? Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I'm, I can hear you. Okay. Um, Sarah lost my sound. I'm going to assume that I still have it if you can still hear me. Um, but at that point, I really started seeing if there was research out there to either confirm or deny that these women were onto something when they were saying, you know, prostitution and pornography are like they're using pornography to send a message about prostitution. And they're focused on the violence and it's true. 50% of trafficking victims in prostitution are used for pornography. 
80% of trafficking victims have been forced to reenact specific sex acts from pornography. 86% of underage runaways come from foster care and social services. Of those runaways, one out of six will become trafficked, and that often involves being filmed for child sexual assault materials. So pornography and prostitution are heavily overlapped. And then with that whole world and child trafficking, I hope you're not hearing too much of my background noise. I have some kids in the background. They have a babysitter. They'll be fine. Um, but of, yes, prostitution and pornography are, there's a lot of overlap. And then of that world, children end up getting pulled into it. And the reason why children are pulled into it, this is from a former trafficker who was given the option of rehab or prison. Um, and she chose rehab. She said that one of her, oh no moments, how deep have I gotten moments was when she took a young adult and dressed her up as a 12 year old and her phone just went crazy. And that's when she realized that what they're doing in the sex industry is they are marketing innocence. That is the world that we participate in when we view pornography. I do not, because of my experience living in the red light district, um, I do not have the ability to view pornography as a matter of fantasy. There are real women on the other side of the screen and the filmmakers, everyone involved in filming pornography, they don't simply bring their bodies to the act. They bring their sexuality. It is, it is not just a man and his screen or a woman and her screen when we're viewing pornography. It is almost a group event only at different locations and at different times. Yes. Uh, Sarah, in the past, you have described pornography as voyeurism. Is that a definition you stand by and why or why not? Sorry, I lost your sound. So I ended up having to switch mine to my computer speakers. So I muted myself. Anyway, uh, we're back. So yes, I actually have the dictionary definition of voyeurism pulled up just to compare. Uh, because yes, I absolutely stand by that. Um, the definition of voyeurism is the practice of gaining sexual pleasure from watching others when they are naked or engaged in sexual activity. And the subpoint is enjoyment from seeing the pain or distress of others. Both of those are profoundly accurate to the action or habit of viewing pornography. So it's, it's, allowing someone else's sexual experience or sexual exploitation and pain to be wiring your brain as the thing that turns you on. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we think of voyeurism. We think, oh, that's, that's without someone's consent. That's someone like hiding around, like peeping Tom kind of thing. That's really bad. That's a crime. But Doing it on a screen is exactly the same thing. Doing it on a webcam is exactly the same thing. It is marketed, consumerized voyeurism. And with pornography, we do not have any assurance of consensuality. 
Absolutely not. And even for those who might have signed a consensuality type of paper or waiver, you have no idea what kind of grooming, exploitation, or emotionally, sexually, intellectually, just soul-destroying prehistory has gone into the normalization of this for that person to believe that this is somehow less damaging for themselves there i mean there's a big movement um some of my liberal counterparts of feminist porn or they call it ethical porn right and is that better than porn that's accessed through exploitation trafficking sure and yet the entire basis of uh, pornography is about exploitation, right? It's like, we're not going to have a healthy triple Whopper with cheese. You know, you can't just call it ethical. It's very nature. Or call it it, not healthy. (laughs) Call it ethical and call it healthy. And then, ooh, voila, it's healthy. It's not healthy. It's based on objectification, exploitation, right? Um, and so much of pornography, especially high speed internet pornography, has hijacked our sexuality and disconnected emotions, heart from body, right? From, from sex, from integration of what actually makes sexuality healthy when it's tied in with love, when it's tied in with emotion, connection. Um, and, and all that's been about disconnection. Yes. Um, And it becomes about degradation, dehumanization. And then you end up training your mind, a pornographic mindset um, develops a pornographic style of relating, which then, of course, 10 years into marriage, you realize, oh, my whole marriage is falling apart. My sexuality with my wife is terrible. Because you've based so much of your sexual development on a fantasy, (laughs) on fake sexuality that's based in fear, violence. Yeah. It doesn't work in a mutual healthy relationship. That's a great segue into my next question for you, which is you've met, you've coined a term, which I would love to research more if I ever have the opportunity to do research um, after I finish my educational um, pursuits. And that is the term PSR or a pornography style of relating. Could you describe that for my listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Basically what I was noticing in my own life was I had developed these certain ways of relating that were pretty dysfunctional. Right. And so in a sense, I was having a, you know, early on in my 13 years of addiction, kind of jumping from girl to girl, went to five different colleges and was trying to date the hottest girl at the college. You know, it was just like, I would just hop, hop and realizing the older I got, the less that adolescent behavior made sense, right? So it's like realizing, oh man, like I can't keep acting like a 12-year-old boy into my adulthood, right? And and realizing, wow, how did I learn this style of relating? How did I learn this way of being that actually is so unhealthy? And that was, again, back to my um, pornography use and that being my main mentor of my sexual development. And so that was kind of where that came from, that idea of porn mentors us, shapes us. And here's, you know, seven categories where that's, and again, I think we could develop probably 20 more categories where how porn hijacks our brain and develops 
uh, a certain style of relating in relationships that is counter um, and uh, it's opposite of healthy intimacy because porn and love is like oil and water. It does not mix. It's, it's opposite. And so we have to um, deconstruct, reconstruct a new healthy sexuality that's based on intimacy, connection, mutuality. I read your book, How Not to Be an Asterisk SS. <laughs> yes. And um, in there you, you described this, this um, thing of like a man not even really seeing a woman, just seeing the body and then it, it getting even worse to where he doesn't really even see the whole body. He just sees the body parts that he has yes. decided to focus on and how just how warped and unhealthy that is. Sarah, is PSR something that you would say the women in your audience are impacted by? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I just was running um, in one of my betrayal trauma support groups. I, I opened it up just kind of a casting call where every now and then I will just ask an open question. Mm-hmm. And last week, my open question was, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was asking the, the members of that women only group, if they were to choose the top five things to like map out the impact of their spouse's porn use on themselves, mm-hmm. what would those things be? And really what I'm asking them is how has their husband's pornographic style of relating affected them. I used more concrete terminology, but the answers ranged from ending up with autoimmune diseases to chronic ongoing other health issues, mysterious infections, fibromyalgia, loathing themselves, feeling constantly hypervigilant, scared to have their husband hang out with other women, always wondering and double checking their husband's eyes. What is he looking at? Is he looking at her? Did he notice that woman's low cut shirt? Is he staring at her? Is he going to be thinking about this one when we go home tonight, worrying about the safety of their children because of the way that their husbands relate with the world in a pornographic way, worrying about needing to sit down and check through a movie before you watch it with your spouse, because you don't know if it'll trigger some kind of reaction because of his pornographic style of relating with the world, suffering from feeling completely disrespected and invisible and unseen because women in porn provide those services without needing to be treated as full humans. Mm -hmm. And they are living out the everyday fallout of that kind of attitude and entitlement. So when you ask that question ahead of time, and I was looking at it, I just, I wanted to weep because I think the good hearted men who've been drawn into pornography have no idea how it gradually overtakes their souls to the point that their wives are just dying inside. And it, it squeezes the life out of their ability to be present and engaged with their kids. Um, 
And for those who've just succumbed to addiction completely, and they just view everything in the world as just like a sex opportunity. I mean, even, even famous Christian authors write that way about men. Oh yes. Like Gary Thomas uh, writes and he's the author of married sex and sacred marriage. And one of the really highly reputable up until recently um, marriage book authors that people often recommended, but you know, he's written things like um, sexual thoughts flicker in the background of a man's visual cortex at all waking hours. And he's constantly ready to seize any sexual opportunity. And I'm like, okay, that makes me want to scare, be like scared to go to the grocery store. I, I don't want to leave my house. If every male human is like ready to seize a sexual opportunity, that makes me feel like I'm going to get like assaulted and raped, just like running to get cornflakes. Yeah. And so it's, it's terrifying. Many women, certainly not all, but many women live with a low grade complex trauma from hypervigilance mm -hmm. simply as the result of how they have been treated by fathers, brothers, husbands, boyfriends yep. in an ongoing basis. And, and these women typically don't even know why they're fatigued, exhausted, chronically stressed, and unable to feel safe and relaxed anywhere. Yep. So yes, yes, that's a long nuanced answer, but yes, the women in my audience are impacted by the pornographic style of relating. And far too many times women in my audience discover over time that they have internalized a female version of the pornographic style of relating either in their critical, quick judgment of other women for not meeting whatever they think is the right particular benchmark or standard and, or in their excusing men's pornographic style of relating. And so they've internalized it as normal or they've just internalized that, that they deserve this. I think it's, I think it's time, Sarah, we write that article this next week, the woman's internalization of that because the entire society, right? I mean, church culture is not much different. Another way to say if that. Anything, uh, it's worse. Yeah. Worse, you have a exactly. scriptural whip to crack over everybody's heads for. It. Um, another way, another um, psychologist came up with a patriarchal stress disorder, right? It's like living in this society, yeah. being a woman, um, you know, having all the, this media and just constantly devouring their bodies. Women are developing all sorts of problems internally. They're internalized sexism. They believe, they become come to believe that they are less than, that they are just bodies. And so much of that is coming from, I believe, a male-dominated patriarchal society, right? Where 90% of church leaders are men, um, you know, 90% of pastors. And it's coming from this place that, yeah, like we're in charge and we devour. And we're going to do what works for us until enough of us, right, actually say no. And that's why I love Sheila's work so much. And, and, you know, Sarah's and like, in a sense, beginning to change the conversation of saying no. Men aren't, uh, you know, uh, uh, internally erect all the time and going out to devour people. You know, it's like, no, actually, we can have healthy conversations and begin to have healthy um, sexuality that actually is not predatory, that's actually based in mutuality. And 
I'm not just going to go jump on someone. I'm actually, I have to wait to build a relationship and fall in love. Like an actually healthy relationship. Um, that's what men are at the core. And yet we've developed something very different and told that we are just animals. See, and I think that is so, honestly, it's beastly on every level yes. to tell men that you're beasts, but it's also just a beastly point of view to emasculate and dehumanize all men in this sweeping generalization that uh, you're supposed to be in charge of everything. Andrew, come on, step up. You have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You can't share it with anyone or you've lost your real manhood, but also uh, newsflash, you can't control yourself. Exactly. Sucks yep. to be male. And I, I think that's just so dehumanizing and degrading to men. Exactly. Don't, I mean, like that. exactly. I'm the mother of a child who, I, I mean, I have a, a son and a daughter and I, good Lord, I want my son to not grow up with that de, demoralizing idea that he's just nothing better than his hormones. Yep. Thank you. I'm not raising a son to just believe that, that he's got nothing to do, but act like a horn dog. Sorry. You said this was an explicit one. We could say whatever we wanted. Right. And more than I'm raising my daughter to accept that from any other boy. Exactly. So yeah, I have massive issues with the demoralization and dehumanization of men as though they are nothing bigger than sex drive. It's horrible. And I, I, I see the, the link between like, especially I come from a super hyper complementarian background like where women, my cousin and I were trying to remember if we were even allowed to choose songs in church as women, if that was like, it's been so long. I'm not sure whether or not we were, but it was almost literally no voice ever. Um, And so I, I see that link between what we suffered as women and what we were told was our place. And at the same time, I see Ephesians five, where it talks about husbands loving their wives, like Christ loved the church and then wives submitting as, as the church relates to Christ, the burden of that relationship lands on the one who's supposed to love the way Christ would have died. And lay himself down, right? Literally crucify himself. Right. Right. And like, that is so vital. Like, will you actually crucify yourself? And this is where I find so many men are cowards and don't like pain. So we run from responsibility and we act like adolescent boys rather than owning our failures and and stepping up and stepping into authentic masculinity, laying yourself down, bleeding, crucifixion. Can I, can I jump in on this though? I think that there's a really important conversation, which also probably is much longer than we have today, but it's about power that has to do with this. Uh, I love what Tom pride at Psalm 82 initiative says is that godly men go first. Mm-hmm. And then you think, wait, what? I, I thought men are supposed to be letting other goes, others go first. If they're, if they're like the first shall be last, but, but he says, no, 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 no. We go first, first through the gate of danger, first to love, first to forgive, first to die, first to protect first to self-sacrifice it. So yes, you want to be a godly man. Who's going first, first to the cross, first Mm -hmm. to wash feet and set that example 
of that self-sacrificing love like Christ has. But then there are also those who are like, well, it's women's turn, right? Like women should be able to take over now because men have done it badly for a while. So like it's our turn to do it badly. I can't subscribe to that because I think that it's neither gender's turn to rule badly over the other. Thank you. Yes. We, we have to shift the way we look at this, especially in believer circles, if we want to be representing the heart of Christ. And that is whatever power I have as a woman, as a man, whatever power I have, I use it to uplift and empower other people the way Jesus did. So if I'm bigger and stronger, or I have a higher station, or I have more money, or if I, and I can just lift the heavy things better. I use whatever power I have to make life happier, safer, and more harmonious for the people around me. As a mom, I have more power than my kids. Okay, great. But I use it to train them well, to teach them well, and to love them well. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, we need to take power and like switch gears and like swap genders and who's in power. Whatever power we each have, if it comes from God, we're using it to build others up, make them safer, healthier, stronger, and more able to be in their own identity with less control from anyone else. Yes. I would, I would only, I would only add that sometimes if there has been historically, you know, 20 years of abuse and the power differential has been so one-sided that there may be a season where you actually, as a man, surrender a lot of your power because of how lopsided it has been. Absolutely. And the goal no, is not to, to just for the woman to become an abuser and the oppressor. The goal is mutuality. Yes. Right? The goal is, but sometimes there does just for a season have to be that because it has been so lopsided. Yep. If I have used my voice and my autonomy to erode your voice and your autonomy, Part of me nurturing your voice and autonomy back into being is my voice and autonomy taking a backseat. Yes. And that really is using the power to temporarily silence oneself. Yes. But you're still using your power for good. Right. Yeah. One of my my friends, he's not a pastor, but he has the pastoral gifting. If you can follow Mm -hmm. that, like he's a very nurturing type of person. He told me this way that when it comes to shepherds and sheep, a good shepherd knows that someone is going to suffer. Either he will be lazy and his sheep will suffer or he will suffer and be diligent and his sheep will be safe and taken care of. And that good leadership suffers so that our people, whether it's our kids, our audience, our, you know, our, our spouse, Good leadership suffers so that the other does not. And that's so the opposite of abuse dynamics is the opposite of pornography consumption. Um, yes. Andrew, a book about that called Leaders Eat Last. Ooh, I'll write that one down. I've been writing down the books that y'all have been mentioning. You say <laughs> leaders eat last? Leaders eat last. Okay. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. And Leading with a Limp by Dr. Dan Allender is also a good one. Leading oh, and Nathan by Allender is do we ever lead any other way? <laughs> Only if you're lying to yourself. <laughs> Andrew, you have previously said that men need to accept their porn addiction in order to overcome it, that they need to see what desire is actually behind their pornography use and that they cannot be honest about the underlying desire when they are still denying the depth of addiction. 
Is that something you would be willing to speak into right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got get in trouble for this sometimes, and yet I'm going to continue to to speak to it just because I, I believe in men so deeply. I don't believe the core of us is bad. I don't believe the core of us wants to uh, devour. And now, yes, sometimes you grow into that, and you you in a sense become that 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 evil narcissistic coward. But yet, so many, the majority of men. Um, many times, you know, or at least I can speak for myself. It started with just a curiosity, right? Nobody told me about sexuality. What, what's a, what's a woman? Oh, I like, like, it's so innocent. And then over the years, it develops into something darker. Right. And, and so my initial desire core was for love was for connection. And my parents had just recently divorced. Nobody was talking about it. No, I, nobody, I was alone. Right, I was left alone, and that youngness, in a sense, seeks out, despite how unhealthy it is, seeks out something to feel, to to soothe, seeks out something to parent. In a way, uh, porn began to parent me. Porn began to step into places that my parents did not and did not have the courage to go into. And and so, in, in that sense, I can bless that little boy that desire without blessing the evils of pornography and objectification, but I can begin to have compassion rather than contempt on that little boy. And I remember the first time publicly I spoke about uh, my addiction to pornography, I was leading a workshop on addiction and somebody said, well, what about your own addiction or how'd you get into this? And I said, Oh, because of my 13 year addiction to porn. And I was like, Oh crap. Like I didn't realize that I actually said that out loud but I had been doing enough work, you know, in my own therapy that I began to make peace with my shame for the first time. And I looked out in the audience and, you know, it's probably like 30 people there or so, and, and they were leaning forward and they had compassion in their eyes. And so I kept going, I kept talking about it, but I was so scared that they were going to have contempt towards me in the same amount that I had contempt towards myself, right? Exactly. That I had shame towards my own story, that I was part of the problem, that I for years had devoured and abused women. Um, and, and so when we can begin to bless, we can begin to not be silent. We can begin to make peace with our depravity so we can actually begin to become advocates and not abusers. Wow. So what I hear you saying is that the, the core desire that launches men into pornography is often a desire for something that is healthy and God given, but the pursuit of it is not. And then pornography, of course, warps our expectations and our ideas about love. So a man can be married to a woman who genuinely loves him and is pouring out love. He can have unconditional love living in his own house. And he still goes to pornography because real life. Yes, yes, exactly. And and again, it's not all men. We can't put all men and, you know, this is always true. Like those, those aren't helpful. And yet no matter how much the wife loves him well and unconditionally, it does not matter because he's literally learned the opposite that I actually crave shallow relationship. I actually, now I crave non-unconditional love. I say I want love, but really I want something cheap. I want something quick. I want something without risk, without costs, right? So it's like the real stuff actually ends up terrifying me. I'm so scared of genuine intimacy and love. Just give me the cheap stuff. Come on, let's just, you know, orgasm and get on with it. Like that it becomes so shallow and disconnected. So again, it's not a 
no matter how great the wife loves until the man gets help and gets healing at the deep core, it's not going to matter. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. Like we don't tell a heroin addict, even if their heroin addiction began out of loneliness or abandonment or some other form of anguish and loss. We, we don't tell a heroin addict to go home and take more heroin to fix their addiction. So when we tell spouses of sex addicts, you need to give them more sex to fix his porn addiction. We are not operating under an, a, stand, a proper understanding of how addiction works. More soulless sex is not going to fix a sex addiction. Right. More connection, more soul-driven intimacy without sex, more understanding of how human hearts work, more sense of, of restoration in your soul with Jesus Christ can absolutely help to change and rewire over time the way that someone's mind has been damaged by binging on the exploitation of others for gratification, but telling a wife to just go home and have more sex, it's not going to fix the situation. It just makes her feel like a toy. Especially, or just a gadget. Yeah. Especially if he's relating to her at like through that pornography style of relating her, he might say be fascinated by her boobs and not even see her as a person or even really as a whole body He's not even having that intimate connection with her in his mind. He's just having another moment with a pair of boobs. Yep. And that's really devastating to her. Um, we have a that's few minutes left. Oh, so good for either of them. Sorry. Oh, exactly. We have a few minutes left. So let's tackle the last question. And either one or both of you can speak into this. I want to discuss the dynamic where a man. Uh, because usually men, like men do consume pornography more than women do, where a man is on his way to becoming healthy and the wife becomes resentful or reacts poorly. What's going on when a man becomes healthy and then suddenly the spouse begins to relate poorly to him? Can you speak into that? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that first, Sarah, if you don't mind, because I, I just I see this literally every every day and seeing it more now than ever. But no, the way I, I explain it, is men have to realize that they were driving the car in the relationship and they were driving irresponsibly drunk under the influence and they crashed the car and you sideswipe the passenger seat and you have left your wife um, with internal bleeding, a broken arm, a broken leg, whiplash. And now she's trying to learn how to walk again. And now she's got to go to rehab and she's pissed because you were driving irresponsibly, not her. She was just riding with you, trusting that you knew how to drive responsibly and you weren't. And so if you can use that framework, um, then that can be helpful to have compassion when your wife is triggered, when she doesn't trust your words, when um, after years of sobriety, they're still you know, trauma triggers that are happening. So with that framework, that can be helpful. And yet sometimes women I've, you know, 
aren't getting well in, the, in that sense. Like in the in, internal bleeding, still like too much damage has been done. And that is okay in that sense, meaning that the marriage might not make it because of what you as a man have done. And you have to realize that that still may be the, the end result might not be reconciliation as far as the marriage. Um, but you can still become an authentic, integritist man who knows how to drive well in the future. Yeah. And to speak to that from the spouse's point of view, uh, I, I think you nailed it, Andrew, that the man, the addict in this situation has to be prepared to do the work, to be a good and safe man, like you describe it, Andrew, regardless of whether or not he gets to keep his marriage relationship. Yep. This can't be a tool where, okay, I fixed myself. So you won't leave because then it's just another control mechanism. Yep. He has to be willing to surrender to the emotionally bloody, messy, painful work of undoing what porn has done inside his mind and his soul. And that can take a long time. Now, personally, I view porn as a form of adultery. When you are intentionally, knowingly, sexually aroused and involved by watching someone else's sexual activity or their naked body, that is lusting and that is adultery. Now, that doesn't mean that every betrayed spouse needs to go divorce her porn addicted husband. It doesn't mean that she needs to be told to go leave and divorce her porn addicted husband. Does she have the biblical freedom to do so? I think yes. But does that mean that she needs to be told that's the primary option she should take? No. I mean, she might choose to do that. She might say, look, this pain is beyond what I can heal from. I have to go and start over. And my husband has to be willing to do the work on his own without me. And that's just what I need for my own mental health and my own emotional health. And that's okay. Hmm. He does have the biblical right to do that. If she wants to stay and she's like, you know what? I, I don't want to start my life over. I want to try to stick this out. Then he has to be willing to let her be absolutely raging mad at how irresponsibly he was driving the car. She has to be able to process her grief and her rage without him going into mm-hmm. like, why are you mad at me about this? I already said I was sorry. Like you need to get over this already. He or, shame, or shame and self-contempt. Or yes, it, his, his loathing for himself. He needs to be able to grow to the point. If he's going to get past this, if he's going to get to the other side, he has to be able to let her fully have all the range of emotions of his irresponsibility and the pain and the damage and the wreckage that he has caused. Mm-hmm. And if he can let her do that and stay even keel and recognize and have empathy for the intense amount of betrayal and pain that that has caused, they have a great shot at getting to the other side of it. If his pride and his ego, and now you, you work, I'm looking at this from, from the angle of the women that I work with. So Andrew, if you think I'm not on point, correct me from the guy's point of view. But my perspective is that if his ego prevents him from really letting her have that, 
it doesn't have nearly as much of a good chance as if he's willing to go ahead and let her go through those emotions without shame, without contempt and without ego and pride. Am I right? Yes, no, exactly. And it's difficult. I mean, you know, these men are, and yet it's like, yes, it is difficult. And so was the 20 years of your lying and bad behavior, right? Like it is, it's difficult. And yet, uh, you you know, sometimes it, it doesn't end the way they wanted to. And there's just grief. Everybody's invited to grief in these types of scenarios, right? Everybody's invited to grief and it's painful. And that makes sense. It should be. You know, I tell men often who are like, man, my wife is so kind and loving and actually held my hand. And the next day she wanted to, she was calling me names. And I was like, yep, that sounds about right. Right. It's like she, she was feeling love and drawn to you. And then she got triggered and she was mad and pissed and wanted to punch you in the face. Like, that's not crazy. That's normal. That's a normal response. Say that again. Yeah. You did that to her. Right. That's a normal response. And yet that, that it's not the end goal. Obviously that's not going to have a, create a healthy relationship. And yet that's going to be a season that hopefully both will then take on. And this is where so many women are like, well, it's not fair um, that I have to do work now because of your, and you're right. It's not, but what do you like? (laughs) And um, you want a healthy relationship. You're going to have to rebuild something that was broken together with a safe and good man. Right. And so in a sense, the next step is healthy um, marriage building because it has been so um, the power has been so distorted. And in a sense, you almost have to relearn how to be married again in mutuality. A different marriage than ever before. Yes. Yes. The old marriage really just has to die. Yes. It, it has to be buried, dead and gone, have a funeral for it in yes. order to be able to build almost- healthy. Literally almost every week we have rituals of marriages and we bury in the woods and we have fire and baptize each other. And some of the most courageous work I've seen is when two people have integrity and say, we need to bury this. And that either ends in divorce or it may not, it may just be symbolic, but many times it doesn't divorce. And literally it's with full face, full integrity. I have failed you and you are done. And both people are honest and real about where they're at and healthy. And gosh, those, we, we, my wife and I bury marriages all the time. It's like, man, when did we become death doulas of marriage? But it's like, that's literally what we're doing all the time um, in a sense, because our goal is not to save the marriage. Our goal is for mutual liberation, whatever that is. And we don't know until we cut it up, cut the, cut the marriage soul up, right? The marriage soul, what, what we're saying is, as, as, long, as long as you've been married, so let's say you've been married for 20 years, then your first child you created is a marriage soul. And that's the child that we need to tend to. And what's the condition of that child? Well, many times they're on you know, ventilators. Many times they're in the ER. Many times they're ICU. And we need to learn how to tend to that child well. And, and that's how we approach these marriages. And we don't know what's in until we begin to really dive in and cut it up and see what's in there, if it can be resuscitated, or if we need to pull the plug and grieve its loss. So, and sometimes that can't be assessed from the spouse's point of view without a kind of a structured separation. She needs to go breathe clean air while he does some work. Then, um, you know, they can come back and say, okay, do I really, where am I at? And they both need that chance to breathe and decide what they're going to do. Anyway, moving on. Sorry. So 
Um, what I'm understanding you two to say as far as the comparison of him driving stupidly and her having internal bleeding, it relates well from the perspective of trauma survival. Like when we are in a traumatic moment, we can go into fawn mode or freeze mode where our outward mannerisms are polite because we are surviving. But once we actually feel safe, I recently read a book on it. I think it was Tri Softer that mentioned this. When we actually feel safe is when our unhealthy um, or unhelpful ways of coping actually come to the surface where we begin to be unpleasant and we begin to be angry. And so if a man yes. is listening to this and he's going, my wife had been pleasant to me for 20 years while I was addicted to porn and now I'm getting clean and she's getting angry. She was terrified of you, did. And now she finally feels safe enough to experience her and express her real emotions. Exactly. We have gone a little bit over time. So I'm going to end with the last question, which is where can my listeners find your books and other work? I'll link it in the show notes. Sarah, you go first here. Sure. Uh, so all of my stuff is on www.wildernesstowild.com. And I can make sure that you have the, the actual link so there's no confusion for the show notes. Okay. Uh, right now we have online courses, we have online coaching, and we have online communities for women who are recovering after trauma, domestic violence, abuse, and betrayal trauma. Uh, we also have just launched a brand new mobile app for trauma mamas. And I am oh. super excited about that. It has a ton of free content. It's available on Google play store for Android and on the app store for iPhones and tablets. And, um, it puts all of the resources right in your hand, right on your phone, easy access, just right in an app. It also has membership community plans for extra resources and toolkits, trauma tools for mamas and for kids, anxiety management, understanding this, the, the brain education of what's going on when you do get triggered, how to handle really practical things like how do I talk to my kids about changes happening in our family? How do I handle court stuff? How do I survive as a single mom? If I've become a single mom, all of these kind of things, super practical things, as well as the physiological and, and psychological trauma response stuff. Mm -hmm. So that is at traumamamas.app slash get. And that takes you to all the information where you can download that and get on the wait list for enrolling for any of the communities. Okay. Traumamamas.app slash get. Yes. Okay. I got that. Yep. So that's where, and then it, from the wilderness to wild, you can link to all of the Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We have hundreds oh. of videos on YouTube, the channel. Um, but all of that stuff is linked from that main website. Awesome. Andrew, where can my listeners find your books and other work? Yeah, you can follow uh, my blog at andrewjbauman.com and got over 100 blogs, um, resources. And then our offerings are on christiancc.org. Um, and this is where we offer groups and um, uh, intensives. So people fly out to our place in North Carolina. And then we're currently developing a center on the West Coast as well. Um, and yeah, people fly out and do, we do a lot of marriage intensives. It's probably our most popular offering. And then I do a lot of men's groups, um, and different groups for, for folks. Awesome. I will put those in the show notes. Thank you all so much for the conversation today. Um, I hope that there's someone out there who thought that pornography was just a fantasy, just a struggle. Who's going, holy cow. 
I didn't realize pornography impacted all these people and I didn't realize it went so deep. Um, I think having an honest conversation is integral to actually overcoming a problem like this. Uh, Anyways, thank you so much and y'all have a good day. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Please find the Hope Beyond Trauma Facebook page or Facebook group and begin to interact with other listeners and myself there. I try to pay attention to audience discussion in order to meet needs or to answer questions. So your interactions there can help to guide future episodes. I hope you leave today's episode encouraged, hopeful, and thinking about ways to love people well in your off-screen life.